Good morning, church. You guys might be wondering why I'm standing here this morning instead of David. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Ryan. I'm usually up here hitting things with sticks and singing. Um, but this morning, we are still on baby countdown for Baby Maverick uh, with David and Ashley. And we weren't sure if Maverick would be here yet or not. He is not here. We're still on baby countdown, but it's, it's, a, it's just a matter of time. I was, I was actually telling Ashley this morning, this, guy's just, this is the way my brain works. I hope when they have their second child, even if it's a girl, I hope they name that baby girl Goose. <laughs> because I can just imagine Maverick and Goose running around the house, running around, screaming around Ashley, pretending they're buzzing the tower and, and pretending they're in Top Gun. <laughs> Need for speed, that's right. Um, I'd also like to remind everybody, usually this is the point we would send our kids out to the pirate kids, but today is family day. Once a month we do family Sunday. So all the kids are going to be in here with us this morning. So we get the whole family in here uh, for this service and this message. So as many of you know, we've been, we've been taking a journey through the book of Acts Two weeks ago, we looked at the beginning of Acts 14, and we asked ourselves the question, what does it mean to be free? David was talking to us, we all love our freedom, right? Uh, he, we answered the question of, is it possible to be physically free and yet still live in spiritual bondage? Um, and I'd like to remind you also, you can go back and listen to these messages if you'd like to. Uh, to get a little more in-depth with those in case you missed those. Last week, we looked at the end of Acts 14, and we saw how the good news of Jesus is often met with division, persecution, and opposition. David showed us that we're truly living in a war zone. There's, there's a spiritual battle that is happening between darkness and light. So far, this account through Acts, we've seen it's filled with a lot of joy. We've seen triumph. We've seen the power of the gospel. But we've also seen the costliness of spreading that gospel. We've seen how Paul and Barnabas have traveled from city to city, sharing the good news wherever they've gone. We've seen the good news stir a radical movement. We've seen the Holy Spirit work through them. And anytime the good news is preached, we've seen a radical stirring of the Holy Spirit in the hearts and lives of the people that, that it reaches. We've seen it touch people, but we've also seen riots incited in the cities that they've gone to. Because we see that opposition, because anytime we know, anytime the Holy Spirit is doing a good work, anytime he's transforming lives, we know that the enemy is going to do everything he can to oppose that. He's going to do anything he can to cause division. So today... We get to look at chapter 15. It's a chapter that opens with a disagreement. This is the first time in Scripture we see division start to creep into the church. Um, raise your hand if your family has never been involved in a disagreement. Look around. I don't see any hands in the air. Well... The disagreement that happens in this first chapter is, is one, to, to put it bluntly honest, it's one about circumcision. Um, so
So, again, David, thank you for asking me to fill in and preach this message today and talk about this big word of circumcision and disagreement in the church. So one of my favorite times of year is that Thanksgiving and Christmas time. And it's a time that we can get together with family. We can spend time with each other. We can eat good food. We can relax, hopefully. And it's a time that's never filled with any arguments or disagreements, right? Right? No. Anytime you get a family together or anytime you get more than two people together in one room, there's going to be a disagreement, right? There's going to be an argument. This last Thanksgiving, this uh, Thanksgiving last year, my wife and my son Gaines, Malachi hadn't been born yet. We go to my family's house, my mom and dad's house, for our Thanksgiving dinner with them. And my mom and dad both love to cook. My dad loves to cook turkey. He loves to cook turkey so much that even for just our small group, he cooked two turkeys. He baked a turkey. And he fried a turkey. So if you've never had fried turkey before, I encourage you, get you a fryer, get you an oilless fryer, and fry a turkey, because it may be one of the most delicious things you've ever put in your mouth. So they like to cook. My mom usually does like the green bean casserole, the mashed potatoes, all the other stuff. My mom is an amazing mashed potato cook. Like we go to restaurants, and she has a thing for creamy mashed potatoes. We'll go to a restaurant, And she'll ask the waiter or the waitress, they'll come up and take her order, and she'll say, are your mashed potatoes fake or real? (laughs) And they're like, huh? And she she goes, no, are they out of a box or are they real mashed potatoes? And if they say they're out of a box, my mom will not eat them. So my mom makes delicious, creamy mashed potatoes. And she made these mashed potatoes for this Thanksgiving meal. And one of the Gaines has been an amazing kid for us. He's, he's minded, but one of our struggles with him, he is, he's like the world's most picky eater. And so we have lots of meals with him where it's like this knockdown drag out of like, you're going to eat this food? And he's like, no, I'm not. And we're like, yes, you're going to eat that food. And he, I guess it's a texture thing, really. I don't know. He's gotten a lot better as he's gotten older, and he'll eat a lot of food. But this particular day... We have the food in front of us. We put some turkey on his plate. He had no problem with the fried turkey. We put a scoop of mashed potatoes on his plate, and we said, Gaines, you need to eat a bite of your mashed potatoes. That's kind of our rule. Like, if you don't like the food, that's okay, but you have to take at least one bite of it and make that decision. And he says, I don't want to eat the mashed potatoes. And we said, Gaines, you have to take at least one bite. You're going to eat the mashed potatoes. And he says, I don't want to eat the mashed potatoes. Mimi and Papa chime in at this point, and they say, oh, he's at Mimi and Papa's house. He doesn't have to eat the mashed potatoes. And my wife and I say, no, he's going to eat the mashed potatoes. It's our rule. It's what we do. And they're like, but he's at Mimi and Papa's house. He doesn't, we don't want him upset. And Gaines is like, yeah, Mimi and Papa said, I don't have to eat the mashed potatoes. I don't have to eat the mashed potatoes. And Nicole and I are like, this is, what, this is our battle we're picking to fight right here. This is the one we pick. We're putting our foot down. He's eating a bite of mashed potatoes. So Gaines finally says, okay, I'll eat the bite of mashed potatoes. And he takes his spoon, and he gets a, a scoop of it, and he puts it in his mouth. 
and he starts chewing it, and we're all like looking at him like, I think, is he going to like the mashed potatoes? And he's looking at us, and we're like, Gaines, do you like them? Do you like the mashed potatoes? And I guess he didn't want to hurt his Mimi and Papa's feelings, but he looks at us with this like half grin on his face, and he goes, mm-hmm. And we're like, okay. And so he goes to swallow. He goes to ship the package of mashed potatoes down to Bellyland. And as he goes to ship this package of mashed potatoes down to Bellyland, Bellyland decides that it does not want to receive this package. And in fact, it wants to return it to Cinder. Not only that, it doesn't want to keep any of the packages that have already been shipped to Bellyland and wants to return all of them to Cinder. And that's exactly what happened. So my wife sees it coming. She dives with her hands out like this, and she catches a couple of the packages, but not all of them. The rest of the packages end up all over his plate, all over the table. I'm in the corner because I don't handle returns of packages well. I'm debating on whether or not I want to return some packages of my own and whether or not I want to pay that postage. And all of a sudden, we just have this big mess. So all that long story to say, anytime we get family together, anytime there's two or more people together, there's going to be a disagreement. There's going to be an argument. And a lot of times, it, it, it's going to end in a giant mess. So just like we have disagreements within our family, the church also experiences disagreement. So the particular one we see here in 15, like I said, you fellas might squirm a little bit about it, but it involves circumcision. So let's start, let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 15. And I know this is a lot of verses, but just like a couple of weeks ago, I think it's really important to get to the full picture. So we are going to read this entire chapter, so just... Just bear with me. We're going to go through the whole thing. Acts chapter 15, when you've got it, say, I'm there. You there? All right. So beginning in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and bait with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by the mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? 
but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David, David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them, to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from, the, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For, he is read every, it is, for it is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and have... Having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So let's go back a little bit. In verse 1, there's a group of men from Jerusalem who come down. And what is it that they're saying again? In verse 1, they say, Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. See, this statement right here is the statement that would begin to cause a rift and a split in this church in Antioch. We see a group of men come down from Jerusalem. They make their way into the church at Antioch, which was full of new Gentile believers. And see, these, these people, they've, they've come out of what could be called 
a raw paganism. This, this, this belief was a belief that was steeped in idol worship. It was steeped in very immoral sexual practices that were held within the temples. And in these practices and in these beliefs, these people were far from God. In being far from God, this meant that they were hopeless. They were hopeless in their outlook to a future. They lived lives that were given over to darkness, to despair. But see, Paul and Barnabas, they came down and they preached the good news to them. They preached the good news of Jesus to them. And these people, these Gentiles, these, these people that were practicing this raw paganism, they, they said they wanted to give their lives to Jesus and they experienced the salvation that could only be found through Jesus. And because of that, they were living in light. But now what these men from Jerusalem are saying is, wait a minute, wait a minute. See, these Gentiles, they're not, a, they're not circumcised according to our Jewish law. They're not, they're not in accordance with the rules and regulations. And because of that, they can't be saved. They can't experience the fullness of a relationship with God. Basically, what these men were saying is, you got to follow Jewish law. In order to become a Christian, you got to become a Jew. Unless you become a Jew, you're pretty much a second-rate Christian if you're even a Christian at all. So what's happening is, they're challenging the message of God's grace through Jesus that Paul and Barnabas had just preached to them in every town that they went to. What this did was it caused these new Gentile believers to question their own faith and their newfound salvation. Because now these believers are saying, wait a minute, we're not circumcised. We haven't fulfilled that part of the law. Does that mean we're not saved? Does that mean we haven't experienced that grace that you just told us about? So, in a way, the first division that begins to creep into the church is over race and ritual. Does that sound familiar to any of you guys? Let me ask you guys a question. Has there ever been a time in your own life where because of a sin, because of something you struggle with, because of something you're going through, that you've questioned your own salvation? Has there ever been a time that because of that one struggle, you can't seem to shake it. You've given your life to Jesus. But this, this sin, this struggle, this thing, it, it keeps coming back. It keeps rearing its ugly head. You keep finding yourself on your knees, and you say, you're saying, God, I thought I was going to be rid of this. I thought I was going to be done with this. Has there ever been a time because of that that you questioned your own salvation? Or the flip side of this coin. Has there ever been a time where you were out and about, you were somewhere, and you saw a person, and that person maybe looked different than you, talked different than you, acted different than you, grew up in a different family culture entirely, maybe was from another country. And because of all these things, before you even said hello to the person, you looked at this person, and because of this, you automatically assumed that they had not experienced salvation, that they weren't saved. See, by pointing out the Gentiles' inability to live up to or fulfill the law that was given centuries before, these Jewish Pharisees were causing division and doubt. 
They're saying, you haven't lived up to the law. You're not Jewish, so you can't really have a relationship with God. See, by causing these new believers to put their focus on their own inadequacies, Satan, the enemy, was distracting them on putting their focus on Jesus. The grace that he poured out over them and what he did for them on the cross. So now Paul and Barnabas have to decide with the, with the rest of the apostles, how are we going to respond to this? How are we going to respond to this accusation of, of these Gentiles not living up to the law? So I think it's really important to take a step, take a step back here and kind of, um, it's like a 30,000 foot view really, and remind ourselves. So the apostles in trying to answer this question They didn't have the New Testament written for them at this point. This is the accounting. The New Testament is the accounting of them going through this. They didn't have this New Testament to look at to help guide their decisions. So these people, the apostles with these Gentiles, they're learning to answer the question, who are we and what is the gospel? They're having to figure out how to put words and answers to that. They have the Old Testament, they have the scriptures, they have the words that Jesus left them, and they have the Holy Spirit. See, we have the ability to look into the New Testament with all these other things and and help make decisions based on that when we come up with a problem. But, But they didn't have the New Testament yet. So, think about George Washington, okay? George Washington has come to a point where he's he's a war hero. He's led troops to to victories in battle. He's been a major part of leading our nation to its independence, right? We we have our freedom, and all of a sudden, everybody says, we need a president of the United States of of America. Who's going to be that first president? Everybody talks, and they're like, George Washington's pretty awesome. I think he needs to be our first president. So the nation comes together, they vote, and they elect George Washington as the first president of the United States of America. Imagine George Washington learning that, and he wakes up the first morning as president of the United States of America. He wakes up and he gets out of bed, and then he thinks, now what do I do? There's been no president before him to set a precedent for his actions. He probably gets out of bed and he says, what does a president wear? Do I wear those those pants that go like three quarters of the way down and they have those socks that you pull up with the shoes? Do I wear that? Do I wear a white wig or a red wig or a black wig? Or what do I do? Do How do I address people? How do people address me? Do they call me Mr. President? Do they say, hey, you? Or do they say, hey, George? He has all these decisions and things to kind of figure out, and no one before him really has set an example for what this looks like for the president of the United States of America. And that's kind of what these disciples are up against. They're having to figure out, because before them, before before all this, there there wasn't so much of a precedent in making these decisions. So what do they do? If you fast forward a little bit, In Galatians 2, starting in verse 4, Paul looks back at this moment. And in verse 4 and 5, he says, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, 
who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. They didn't give in. So how did they come to this conclusion? We have a, I have a chart for you guys to kind of paint a picture of what was going on. So over here, we have what I like to call the circumcision crew. These are the Pharisees, and these are the guys that are saying, you got to be circumcised. It's got to follow the law. It's got to follow the tradition of Moses. And over here, you have Paul and Barnabas and the apostles, and they come to the decision of, no, you don't need to be circumcised because we are following grace. We're following what Jesus did for us on the cross. So how was it they came to that conclusion? They met, they talked, it says they discussed at length. They met, they talked, they prayed, guided by the Holy Spirit, and they still look back at the Old Testament scriptures. This is a lot of what we should do today as a church, in our families. When there's, dis there's division and a disagreement, how should we handle those? Should we just go stew at, on the side and think about it and think of how we can respond to that person in a way that's going to cut? Or should we get together and talk, talk openly, pray, and allow the Holy Spirit to guide those decisions and look back at the scriptures that we do have? Verse 10, Peter raises a, a really, I think, a really poignant question in Acts 15. He says, Now, therefore... Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? It was a burden that no man could live up to except Jesus. In verses 16 to 18, James quotes Amos. He's quoting Amos and he's saying, look, the prophets in the Old Testament support the decision that we're coming to. They're supporting our decision to not make life difficult for these new believers and these Gentiles. They support our decision to let these people know, you have experienced this salvation found in Jesus. You do have a relationship with God. But what about the law? What about that law that we were talking about? Are these apostles completely disregarding the law that the Pharisees were quoting to them? These, these laws that we can still find in, in books like Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, these laws have been laid out in practice for hundreds and hundreds of years in the Jewish temples. Um, they, they, were laws, they were laws that God gave his people to begin with. They were laws that because they had been practiced so much that, that even the Gentile believers would have been familiar with them. So when the Jewish Pharisees came to them and said, you're not following the law, you're not circumcised, that, that would have made sense to them. What about these laws? Are the apostles disregarding them? Are they basically discounting them and saying these laws don't matter anymore? We've been saved by grace through Jesus, so we don't have to worry about this other stuff? To answer that, let's look in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. It says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, 
It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. I don't know about you, but the first time I read that verse, it was kind of weird. It's like, the law's a shadow of the good things that are to come? What does that mean? What does it mean to say something is just a shadow of the good things that are yet to come? So I thought I have, I have something that I'd like to use to illustrate this for you. So I have a picture. And I'd like to ask you, what is it that you see on this picture? I'll give you a hint. It's an upside-down shadow of a person. Look at this shadow. Now, I want you to think to yourself. I want you to think to yourself and, and see if you can describe the person that that shadow belongs to. You, you can see the outline of them. You may be able to tell if it's a man or a woman. But you really don't know a lot about the person that that shadow is leading up to based just on that shadow. So now, I'd like to show you another picture. You can see that shadow is pointing to my beautiful wife. She's standing in our front yard. I coerced her into taking this picture. But now, now I'll ask you the same question. Describe the person that that shadow points to. Tell me what they look like. You see, this shadow leads up to and even, and even touches my wife. But if you're looking just at this shadow, you can see the outline of who she is, but you can't see any of the features that actually make up who she is. You can't tell me her eye color, which is blue. You can't tell me her hair color, which is brown with some blonde in it. You, you may be able to tell me, like I said, if that's a man or a woman, but you can't tell me what she looks like, what she acts like. If we want to take it a step further, I could tell you that after knowing what she looks like, if I get to know her a little bit farther, I can tell you about her personality. I can tell you about who she is. I can tell you her likes. I can tell you that she likes to eat syrup in her grits. I can tell you her dislikes. I can tell you that she really doesn't like packages being returned on Thanksgiving. So, this is, I think, a good illustration of what the law is. See, the purpose of the law is to point to Jesus. Its purpose is to show that we can never fulfill on our own merit. We can never fulfill the, the guidelines that are laid out. The fact that there had to be sacrifices done because we couldn't fulfill everything that it told us we needed to do. It, it's, its purpose is to point that out, that we can never fulfill it. But there is one who did, and that person is Jesus. See, the price for not being able to fulfill the law was death, and that's why there was endless sacrifices year after year after year. The Jewish Pharisees that were accusing the Gentile believers of not being circumcised and not living up to the law were having to continually make sacrifices year after year after day after day after week because they themselves were not able to live up to the law. But we see, we see that famous verse in John, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son into the world 
to save the world, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But what does it say in verse 17? God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. See, the law itself is not what saves you. It's not what restores your relationship with God. The purpose of the law is to point you to God. The purpose of the law is to help you realize that your relationship with God needs to be reconciled and restored. The only way to do that is through Jesus. And church, that's the gospel. That's what the gospel is. See, the bottom line from today, if you don't take anything away from this message other than this, this is all you take away. The bottom line is that the gospel of Jesus reconciles relationships without compromising truth. Let me say that one more time. The gospel of Jesus reconciles relationships without compromising truth. See, first, it reconciles our relationship with God, and then because it reconciles our relationship with God, it begins to reconcile the relationship with those around us. And see, that's, that's the mystery of the gospel revealed. A relationship with God is for any man, woman, child, race, or class of people. The way the apostles decided to respond to these new believers was to let them know just this. And what it did was it strengthened and encouraged these new believers. So you may be asking yourself, wait a minute, I read the end of this chapter. You're saying it reconciles and restores relationships. But at the end of this chapter, Paul and Barnabas split ways, right? They split ways over Mark. Barnabas wants to take Mark, and Paul says, no, he left us hanging in Pamphylia. He deserted us. I don't want him with us. I do not want to work in ministry with him any longer. What about that? You may be asking yourself, what what about that? Well, like I said, we have the, the rest of the New Testament written. So look at what happens in 2 Timothy 4. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul is writing Timothy. In verse 11, what is it he says? Paul says, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. Why? Because he is helpful. He is helpful to me in ministry. See, disagreement, division has not gone anywhere. It's still present even in our churches and our believers today. But what does the gospel of Jesus do? It reconciles relationships, but it doesn't compromise the truth. So what is our focus on Creekside? Is our focus on Jesus and what he did for us on the cross? Or is our focus on our own inadequacies and how imperfect we are and how we're never going to measure up? See, remember that question I asked you at the beginning? That question of have you ever questioned your own salvation or questioned the salvation of somebody else because of differences? In that moment, is your focus on God's love for you or is your focus on that sin that just keeps coming back and rearing its head? Do you keep finding yourself on your knees in front of God saying, God, I can't do it. I've failed again. 
I've sinned again. I'm struggling again. I'm disagreeing with that person again that's supposed to be a believer. We, we don't see eye to eye. I can't do it, God. Because in that moment, you know what God does? He takes your head, he lifts it up, and he says, look at me. Look at who I am. You're right. You can't do it on your own. All those other people around you can't either. But look at me. Because my son Jesus did it for you. He's taking care of this for you. So in that moment, you know what he does? Those sins, those struggles that are deep inside us, those wounds that are so deep, those scars that we have, it's like God takes a light. He doesn't cover them up. He doesn't make them disappear. It's like he takes a light and he shines them through those scars so that everybody can see them. And when they look at you, they don't see the wound so much as they see healing. They see the healing that has taken place. They see the life that you're able to live because of that healing. Because it's in those weaknesses that God is ultimately glorified, church. The fact that there's division still present shows that Satan is still at work. He's still trying to gain a foothold wherever he can. And it shows us that we are still in constant need of God's grace. Does it mean we give up? No. Absolutely not. It means we turn our face to Jesus we give our lives to him, and we strive that much harder to proclaim the good news that was given to us on the cross in, in Jesus' death and resurrection. It means that rather than putting our focus on how sinful we are, how inadequate we really are, rather than putting our focus on our inability to live up to the law, we put our focus on Jesus. We put, put our focus on his majesty and what he's done for us. Donovan Riley, a Lutheran pastor, he said, For years, it was like I had my back turned to the ocean. And I was staring at a shot glass of water that I thought was God's grace. But then, then I turned around. Creekside. What is it that we need to do today? You see, in a minute, we're going to sing a song called His Mercy is More. And I'm going to be at the back. David's going to be at the back. Maybe you need to come pray with us. Maybe you haven't given your life to Christ, and you need to do that. And we'd be more than happy. We'd be thrilled to pray with you and help you do that. Or maybe you need to come to this altar and kneel and give your life to Jesus and say, God, I've given you my life, but I'm still stuck focusing on this sin and these inadequacies. I'm still focused on that disagreement I have with that person, my friend or my family. Maybe, you need, maybe there's someone here that you need to go to and talk with and pray with. So I want you to ask yourself that today, church. What is this calling me to do? I'd like to end, I'd like to close by reading the verses to this new hymn, His Mercy is More. What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, 
all-knowing. He counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. What patience would wait as we constantly roam? What father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Creekside, our sins are many, but God's mercy is more.